Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to another week of Chasing Frets, and I'm so glad to be joined here by my buddy Andy Ellis. Woohoo! And uh, <laughs> this week our guest is Matt Smith, who's who's an old friend of mine who I met years and years ago when we both worked for the National Guitar Workshop. I was mm. I was still in college, uh, it basically was my internship in college, and I was just a simple resident advisor babysitter. One summer, and then the next summer, I became a campus director, and then did that for a few summers, and then went on to uh, work uh, work there full time. And every summer, it was great to travel with Matt. We'd we'd uh, have a lot of the same schedule, and we'd spend anywhere between four and six weeks together on the road. And uh, and he reached out. He's releasing eight or nine. I can't remember so many records. How many? He's putting out eight or nine records. I think it's eight, but we won't <laughs> quibble at this point. Yeah. Anything over five is not, we're not going to quibble. <laughs> and uh, so he's, so there's a couple new records he's putting out. Um, and then he's taken a bunch of his uh, older material, even like going as far back as the late 80s, mm-hmm. and kind of putting it out in the digital world for the first time. So uh, we'd highly encourage you to check those out, and there'll be links down in, in the description for that. But today's episode uh, is something we both learned uh, something about, Andy, and that was how to dip into the world of becoming a multi-instrumentalist. Yeah, and Matt has, if, if we were talking about an artist and a palette of colors, Matt has an enormous palette of sonic colors at his fingertips, quite literally. Uh, guitars, baritones, uh, world at stringed instruments, banjo, mandolin, everything under the sun. Mm. And he tells us the magic secret. I found it to be the magic secret of th- that, that unites all these instruments and that allows one to explore other stringed instruments and not get lost in the exploration. Yeah, and without giving too much away, it, it's also was a way to think about different tunings mm-hmm. and and how they're connected together. Because mm-hmm. before this, I always thought of, okay, I have my standard chord shapes that I use in standard tuning that we all know and love. And when I went to a different tuning, I just thought of a completely different set of chord shapes. I just tried to reprogram mm-hmm. my mind that, okay, I'm in open G or whatever. These are the shapes mm-hmm. for that tuning. But, but right. Matt really unlocks... Uh, a way to think about them that connects them, that helps you helps you learn them more efficiently. You know, 
The unifying theory of everything. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, so Matt Smith is our guest this week. So uh, let's just hop right into it. And here's our first uh, conversation with Matt Smith. All right, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Chase and Frets. It's a pleasure to be here. Huge fan of Chase and Frets. You've been doing it all your life, right? Chasing those frets. <laughs> chasing chasing strings or chasing chasing guitars i, I yeah. guess is the whole thing the, the entire guitar not just the yeah. frets <laughs> uh, well the topic for today is going to be how do you kind of expand your musical arsenal past the guitar what i mean by that is looking at different fretted and, and non-fretted instruments that you can use your knowledge you've learned on the guitar to apply and become more of a multi-instrumentalist so when was the first time you ventured past the guitar and looked at other different instruments when you were younger? I was always like basically an overgrown child. <laughs> and I would see something shiny on the ground and I would say, ooh, ooh. For me, it was the sonics of that. So I would mm -hmm. hear a certain sound and I would go, what is that sound? And I would find out about that sound and I would be very, very interested in it as a texture. For me... uh Music was always about songwriting and about using it to uh, decorate a song. So uh, once I had the regular guitar, I was like, okay, what else can I use on this? And so I remember the first time, for example, hearing slide guitar. In my case, being an old guy, it was Dwayne Allman with the Allman Brothers. And I was like, what is that sound? It's, it's the most human sound I could hear. And through that... Uh, it actually, in the early years of guitar publications, I was able to find out who that person listened to. And then I would go back in time. Who did that person listen to? Who did that person listen to? Until I find, found the originators of the, really the masters of that particular instrument. And then I would listen to the masters and try to get a little bit of that. For example, when I started on the mandolin, I... Uh, I would get just a chord book. Here's some mandolin chords. All right, that's a D. Now I can play that. There's a D. Then I would start to, like, here's a rudimentary scale. And, and then I would take it from there. Then finally a mandolin player said, make sure you play both sets of strings because you're playing it like a guitar player. The downstroke is one string. The upstroke is another string. You always have to play both strings. And it started from there, really. Was this like your teenage years, or is it later than that? It was It was a little later than that. The guitar had my hands full with that for a long time. Right. And, and really, the first one was bass, because as, you know, being in high school, there was eight gazillion guitar players, and there was hardly any bass players. So I'm like, I'll just play bass so I can get a gig. And yeah, then yeah. that left, led me with a, long, long, a lifelong fascination with the bass as well, you know. And then it just kept going from there. Because it seems like seems like the first step usually for guitar players is bass because there's it's so much alike, of course. Well, it's just the bottom four strings of the guitar, and then you're like, but the problem is, is you can't play it like a guitar. Right. You have to start to really listen to yeah. a bass player, and you get called out for that, you know. Oh yeah. So Matt, you play a whole bunch of stringed instruments, and. I'm thinking, despite the differences in, uh, differences in numbers of strings and the tuning and the scale length and the register that the instrument might be in, and many other details, body size, do you find a unifying theme that allows you to step into a new instrument from the instrument that you already play? I do. 
and it involves understanding tunings. So, and I'm just going to, I think we might talk a little bit about this uh, later on, but what I'm going to, once I started to understand the functions of open tunings, mm. for example, the first one I started with was G, and then I realized that some of my favorite players were playing in D, D, A, D, F sharp, A, D. And then from there, I started to realize that everything I played in D could be played on G. I just had to drop everything one string towards the floor and that led me instantly to E and A tunings, because E being the same as D and A being the same as G. And then it led me to C tuning, which is just drops everything, drops another string on the, towards the floor. So I, once I started to realize that tunings basically move uh, horizontally, much like bar chords move vertically, tunings, the same shapes will work in uh, all five tunings I just mentioned. They just move across the neck mm -hmm. instead of up and down the neck, the same shapes. And when I understood that, then all I had to do was, for example, the banjo. I'm like, oh, the banjo's in G tuning. So everything I play in G tuning, the shapes will work in there. And then more esoteric instruments, for, for example, the cavaquinho, the Brazilian instrument, which I dearly love, is tuned in G tuning as well. And uh, many other instruments are tuned to a chord. Anything that's tuned to a chord, you can use the same chord shapes that you would use in guitar open tunings. Mm. All right. I want to I back up a little bit because I think you, you said some pretty important things there. Is that you think of, when you say horizontal, you mean going up the neck from the nut towards the bridge. And when you say Right? Horizontally, I think of moving across the, the fretboard. Oh, okay. And then vertically up the neck. So, up the neck. for example, okay. like a bar, uh, just, just to clarify that, for example, uh, for example, if I played an E shape in, uh, in D tuning, if I, uh, that's my two chord, or my, or for example, that would be my E minor in D tuning with extra stuff. And then if I wanted to play my two chord in G tuning, I would move that shape down one string towards the floor. So it looked like oh, an A minor. A minor, chord. exactly. Yep. Okay. And then the same two chord in the C tuning would be down on the top three strings, like an uh, A minor moved over to the top three strings. Gotcha. And that opened up everything for me, at least starting to understand the organizational capabilities of different instruments. What do you do when you uh, come across an instrument? I, I see that you play Mohan Vina, and I'm really fascinated with that. And for people who don't know what the Mohan Vina is, could you give a brief description and a small amount of history? Sure. The Mohan Vina was actually the instrument uh, pioneered by Vishwa Mohan Bhatt, which is the guy who Rai Kuder played with in Meeting by the River. Mm -hmm. And it's his own instrument. Vina just means stringed instrument. And Mohan means, is from, means it's, it's Mohan's guitar, basically. And so basically what it is, it's got 27 strings on it. Most of the strings are, uh, it's got six main playing strings, and then the other strings are sympathetic strings. So you tune it to a tuning, and then you play it much like a lap steel. So it's on the, uh, it's on your lap, and you would play it like, with that. But the resonant strings give it this beautiful sound. I've actually let that one go. So I no longer have that one, primarily because I have I, instruments certain times. Like I used it once, I think, on a recording. And at a certain point, I'm like, well, I really want this 1931 Gibson tenor guitar, which is one of the most beautiful instruments that I own. And something had to go. 
Mm. So I'm like, okay, that will go. I'll trade that in or I'll sell that one and I'll buy this other one. Yeah. One in, one out. I try to keep that. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't always work. I've been to your place, Matt. It does, it does not always work. <laughs> it does not. No, no. you're failing at no. that. No, I, I have a problem. I'm so, my name's Matt. I, I have a problem. I, <laughs> I acknowledge it. I know. I have way too many instruments. But I, but there, for me, it's, it's my joy and my passion. Yeah. So. It's, there's a lot worse things I could have as problems than too many loving musical instruments. That is true. That's true. <laughs> so if somebody, like I was mentioning before, has feels real solid on their guitar skills and they want to start dipping their toe into the other, is there one you'd recommend starting with? Maybe, I don't know, mandolin or lap steel? or. I would say uh, mandolin because mandolin is... Uh, it's tuned in fifths. Uh, people make the mistake of looking at it ba- like a backwards guitar because it's tuned G, D, A, E. But it can't really be looked at like that. Uh, it really, uh, the way, the reason I like that, because it's tuned in fifths and everything that you play, for example, if you play, uh, you know, O, two, four, five on the th- the G string, on uh, ma- G string courses on a mandolin, that'll give me the first four notes of the major scale. And then it makes it really easy to translate the scale both uh, as you hear it and also uh, technically. So I have G, A, B, C, and then the next string is D, and then I have D, E, F, G, which would be O, 2, 3, 5. So it just makes it real easy to do that. The main thing, though, and I really uh, recommend that anyone learning another instrument does this, listen to the great masters of that instrument. Whenever I would listen to a, uh, an instrument, I would listen a lot to, for example, the Mohanvinya. I just listened a lot to uh, how Vishwa Mohan Bhatt played the instrument before I tried to play it, so I don't sound like a guy just picking up an instrument, playing, you know, Delta Blues on an instrument that's so much more. So with the mandolin, uh, I would listen to, for example, to Jethro Burns, who was, you know, the father of jazz mandolin. Who And I would listen to his playing because I was really attracted to that style of playing more than bluegrass style of playing because I really, really love the round sound hole mandolin as opposed to the F sound hole. I just like the sound of it. Mm-hmm. It's uh, more versatile to me. And, and then I also looked at it as something for me to... Uh, Get what I needed from it, not to uh, to sound like Bill Monroe. I wanted it to sound like me, and I knew what I wanted to do with it. But I don't didn't necessarily want to sound like all the other mandolin players because that requires a lifetime of study. And for me, it was more about the texture and the sound of it, and for me to be able to make it do what I needed it to do, other than making it a lifetime of study. It's amazing how simple it is to get a, a good working knowledge on any instrument. Because hmm. once you understand things, uh, the basics of one, once you understand basic music theory, it's pretty easy to extrapolate what you know to any instrument you go to. That's why it's really important to understand music theory. It's how we communicate as musicians. It's how we measure things. To me, like these, all these instruments we're talking about, I've dabbled with most of them, uh, it's like once you kind of understand the geometry of, like you said, the geometry of the tuning and knowing that frets are half-step, that relationship, and those two, the X and the Y axis, so, so to speak, like you said, you can, you're able to visualize things and apply them to different tunings. To me, where that kind of takes a left turn, I want to pivot here a little bit because I know both of you are very familiar with this, is when it comes to, to lap steel because you have the bar – 
So it's it's less, I don't know, it's less shape-driven because you're not looking at those multi-fret chord shapes that you would on the other fretted instruments. Talk to me a little about taking that I, the ideas you have in tunings for those other instruments and, and transferring them to lap steel. Well, I mean, as far as, for me, the, the main tuning I always love the most on lap steel is dobro tuning, which is high G tuning. It's just two G major triads, GBD, GBD. So with that, you get you figure out a simple scale on the first, second, and third strings, and you can do the exact same thing on the fourth, fifth, and sixth strings. Now, with a lap steel, the most important thing is the intonation. And this is where, even on slide guitar, most people don't spend enough time uh, really developing their intonation. It kind of is a pet peeve of mine. Uh, I think a lot of people play slide out of tune and lap steel out of tune. And there's the, you have to look at it this way. <clears throat> it's basically like playing fretless guitar with one finger. only, And because the bar is over the fret, you can't actually see where you are. You have to trust your ears. So it's really important when you're learning how to play lap steel or any slide instrument to have a relative pitch, like a chord or something to hear, so that you can match it. Because you can't see the fret markers because the bar is over the top. You have to trust your ears. Once you have that, the next thing is about uh, really just resolving to the notes in the chord. It's really great because with steel lap steel guitar, everything is kind of laid out around the chord. If you analyze it, according to music theory, you have root third, fifth, root third, fifth, and high G tuning, GBD, GBD. So then I know if I have the root on the bottom string and the third string, for example, if I want a major seven, I go back a half step, and then I can go up a whole step for two on the sixth and the third strings for my second note of the major scale. Then the next string, both the fifth and the, and the, uh, the second string, are the third. So if that's the third, the fourth will be one fret up from there on both those strings. And then I go to the next strings, the first and the, the fourth and the first string, that's the fifth of the chord. And then from there, I can go either back to the four or up to the six or even up another half step to the flat seven. That way, I know how to build a scale from it. Now, there's another really simple way to look at lap steel, too. How do I deal with minor chords? And... The simple way to do that, if I want to hit a G minor and I'm at the 12th fret, I just move the top three strings up three frets, which gives me a B flat chord, which is basically a G minor seventh without the G. So that's how you deal with minor chords. Anywhere you are, just move up three frets and you have the minor of that chord without the root. Somebody has to play the root, either the bass player or the guitarist or something. But that's how you do it. There's a whole bunch of other little formulas for major sevenths and you know diminished chords and stuff like that. But you'll find, again, it's actually really simple and really pretty easy to play. I did a series of, of uh, five videos for this that, that's available on my site, How to Play Lap Steel and High G Tuning. It's made for guitarists, so you can always mm. check those out if you want. Now, Andy, I bet I don't know if... You'll remember, but when we were talking to Joey Landreth about navigating in open tunings without a slide, he mirrored that exact method that that Matt just described, where you think of the triad and you look for the the scale tones right next to the notes of the triad and start mapping and things below. out. Yep, one above, one below, and, and you start mapping yep. things out that way through inversions up and down the neck. And like we said at that time, it's. It doesn't matter whether you're in open tuning or not. That method works no matter what. For standard, yeah. And on any instrument, yeah. That's that's a great way to look at it. 
Yeah, and I was saying that's to me that's the big takeaway for me from this conversation is instilling in my mind that if you can know basic music theory when it comes to triads and inversions, which isn't some highbrow academia concept, you could probably learn it in ten or fifteen minutes, and be able to mentally map those out, and no matter what tuning, what instrument you're on, then that just unlocks everything. And that also carries into what you were saying is because that was probably once you learned the triads on these instruments, that's what probably made led you to that discovery of moving those shapes horizontally, vertically across the fretboard. It's it's amazing because all instruments once you there's it's people tend to look at things, and I guess this is an analog for life. At a certain point, as a musician, you realize that everything is connected, uh, and this is a little more philosophically. Your songwriting, your singing, your guitar playing, your your improvisation is all connected. It's it's not they're not compartmentalized. And as you understand the same thing with life like that, uh, you also start to understand music is like that too. And the way musical instruments, that's why it's so important uh, to understand simple major scale theory. Understand the major scale. We're not talking algebra here. It's just yeah. two frets and one frets. And then understand, you know, major, minor, minor, major, major, minor, diminished, major. That's just the organizational capabilities of that. Once you understand how to make a minor shape in any tuning, that's just going to, you know, you can go major, minor, minor, major, major, minor, diminished, major, uh, very simply. And you can pretty much figure out the organizational capabilities of that. All I'm doing, I mean, I'm a self-taught lunkhead. So I just kind of look at the things have to be simple for me. I they have to I have to understand it in a really simple way. I tried, uh, I failed miserably in my music theory courses in high school, and it, just because it didn't relate to what I was doing at the time, like how what is a median? If you just said three, I would understand that. Just call it yeah. three. Don't call it subdominant for four. Just say four. That just made everything really, really complex for me, and it made my head hurt, and it intimidated me. And music is supposed to be called playing music, not hurting your head. <laughs> In addition to being uh, you know, a monster player, Matt, you're also known as being uh, a really gifted music instructor and guitar teacher. Um, when you first meet a new student who comes to you basically as, you know, a blank slate. Maybe they've had some music, you know, music, musical instruction, but what do you listen for and look for when you first encounter this new student? It's, uh, I ask them a series of questions to understand their thought process. So everyone thinks differently, and I'll, I'll ask them certain questions like, uh, who are your favorite, what, what do you really like? Above that, I ask them, what are your goals? Like, what do you want to do? Because do if you want to play in a band, that's very different than I want to write my own songs or I just want to play with my friends. So there's a, a number of different things. Either way, it's one of the first times, uh, one of the most important things for me is to really, really inspire the student. They have to go away from that lesson saying, I can't wait till my next lesson. I can't wait to learn more about this. For example, if someone said, I, I might say, what's your favorite song? All right, we can learn that one. Let's learn that. Then I'll say, don't you want to know why they put those chords together like that? 
Why don't, and then that leads to the discussion of simple music theory. And then inevitably, for me, everything is geared towards composition, to them writing songs, because there's no better way to learn something. When I started writing, working with open tunings, I just wrote songs with it. And that way, the information had relevance to me. So uh, it's it's about goals and relevance. It, like the problem many times with, uh, for example, with YouTube videos is that there's way too much information or unnecessary information. Lord knows when I'm trying to figure out a problem with my DAW or something like that, and I I look up a video, I'm like, no, I didn't need to know all that. I just wanted to know this. Can I just learn this without all of that? I just wanted to know what I wanted to know. I didn't want to know. And then you're talking too fast. Don't talk so fast. You're scaring the children. (laughs) (laughs) Not to mention the dogs. Yes, the dogs. (laughs) And that's the type of thing, like when you talk about learning the DAW, it's like, okay, you you find this video, you solve this problem, but if you don't repeat those steps and do that thing you need to do fairly frequently, because you don't use it, that information just kind of seeps out. I also want to add really quickly for some of our listeners who may hear us go DAW, 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 what DAW actually stands for, D-A-W, and forgive me if the listener already knows, but for those who don't, Digital Audio Workstation. So it's a shorthand for Digital Audio Workstation, and now it means the software, now it means whatever you're recording digitally, not a tape machine, DAW. Absolutely. And it's really uh, right now, it's interesting, uh, as someone who's also been very involved in the musical instrument business for many years, it's really one of the largest selling things right now, especially in this time of uh, where there's no gigs. I think what happened with a lot of us is that at first we're like, what's going on? I can't talk to anybody. i got to stay in my house and hunker down. I'm going to buy all the toilet paper I can find and just sit in my house with giant piles of toilet paper and bleach, and no one's going to hurt me because I'm all set up here. And I'll never have to worry about any of this stuff ever again. And then at a certain point, you're like, okay, you know, this is going to be like this. At first, we're all like, it's going to be over by July. And then when it wasn't, we're like, okay, time to get to work. There's no gigs, so what am I going to do now? How am I going to express myself creatively? I'm going to start to work on that record I've been work- I've been meaning to do for all this time. Mm-hmm. And so that's what a DAW is. That's what you're recording on. Pro Tools, Logic, Digital Performer, Studio One, there's a million of them, you know. And the best one is the one you know the best. Absolutely. People are like, which one sounds the best? I'm like, well, it's just ones and zeros. It doesn't matter about your DAW. It matters about your interface, really, and your speakers and your knowledge, you know, Mm -hmm. anyway. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us uh, today. Join us later this week for more with Matt Smith. Matt Smith.